Welcome to MACMA's The Audience Architect Podcast, where we are crafting the future of audience engagement. Our mission? To dive into the intricacies of the ever-evolving media and publishing landscape through the sharp lens of audience marketing professionals. Each episode will unravel the meaning and perspective on trends that are shaping the industry. I'm your host, Bill Levine. Welcome to episode six, a special live episode from the MACMA Holiday Extravaganza, taking place November 30th today, in the stunning Hearst Tower in the heart of Midtown Manhattan. Today, we're uber excited to welcome Jane Hughes, the soon-to-be executive of the Public Relations and Communications Association, otherwise known as the PRCA. James, you're going to blush a little bit, so stay tuned. <laughs> James, currently the president and CEO of FIP, as you know, the International Network for Global Media, is set to embark on his new journey to the PRCA in January. Since September 2017, James has been leading FIP, a pivotal organization in the global media industry, headquartered in London. Under his leadership, and as this morning's amazing program put on display, FIP has become a cornerstone for media businesses worldwide, offering innovative solutions, partnership, and a wealth of industry intelligence. James has spearheaded the transformation of FIP, introducing services like special reports, data services, and diverse events significantly enhancing its networking capabilities and global outreach. Bringing over 25 years of media industry experience, James has held significant roles at the art newspaper, Soho Consulting, Gulf News, which I think was over in the Middle East, Barclays Bank, Novartis, and BBC Worldwide. At BBC Worldwide, he was instrumental in developing global brands like Top Gear, Lonely Planet, and Good Food. So since we get paid by the clap... We've been doing this quite a bit. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please give a big, warm, welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. I had forgotten all the different things that I've done and, and probably don't want to remember half of them. So thank you for that. <laughs> well, maybe it's, let's start here. Maybe it's a little surreal for you. As you said, this is, this is your last live event with FIP. Yeah. Um, so tell us about um, sort of what was the impetus um, for your move and what you'd like to bring to the PRCA. Well, you know, I've been, a, I, I'm, I'm somebody who sometimes gets a little bored easily. And I think after six and a half years, uh, it's not that I was starting to get bored with FIP, but I think I had just done the job that I was forced into do. When I was hired in 2017, it was an organization that needed a change of direction, as many organizations do after a little while. The brief was to try and modernize the business, to try and make it more reflective of uh, its members changing businesses, which we've heard about today, how those businesses are changing quite rapidly. And I think it's a, a pretty easy thing for particularly trade associations to become a little bit fixed in their rut. And I could sense that FIP is becoming a little bit fixed in its rut right now with me in charge. So there was a, you know sense that it was the right time to, to, to let somebody else have a go at this. When you've done the change that we've done, we completely rebranded the organization. We did new, a new website, completely changed the products and service portfolio, changed almost all of the staff. Um, it's, it's a lot of change to go through. And of course, in the middle, we had the wonderful interruption that we all experienced for two years of COVID. And when you're, a, when you're an events business, and you, as we did in March 2020, we had an event scheduled for Berlin at the end of March 2020. And February the 28th, I was still in my office rocking backwards and forwards and going, it's fine, it'll be fine, it'll be fine. And then, you know, our useless prime minister, as we discovered, even we didn't realize then exactly how useless he was. And now we've discovered he was completely inept, stood up and said, uh, you know, we're locking down. Uh, we're on the hook for a ton of cost. So we had to do a very rapid 
pivot. And that really changed the whole dynamic of, of, of what we were trying to achieve with FIP and put a little two-year pause into those plans. So uh, what, to answer your question, I'm moving on because I think, my, I, I think I've done the job I was brought there to do and you, know, you never, stay, never stay too long, always leaving wanting more, like they say on stage. Indeed. And the connection to PRCA, you're not going too far afield. No, I'm jumping over the fence, going to, we're all media folk here, so I can, uh, so I can say it. Really. I'm going to the dark side of PR and communications, which is obviously the mirror world that sources a lot of the content that we uh, write about in our publications. They are, you know, they have an enormous range of activity that they do in the PR and communications industry. And I wouldn't say that I'm an expert on all of it, but it seems to me that, you know, a lot of the B2C and B2B stuff that we get exposed to in media represents only one facet of what they do. There's obviously an enormous amount of political work that they're doing and a lot of interpersonal PR and communications that happens. So it's going to be interesting to get exposed to to all of those different new areas of business. But I I very much have have been hired as a trade association guy. So I'm I'm there to fix the trade association rather than to be an expert on PR and comms, which is good because I wouldn't claim to be an expert on PR and comms. Well, we wish you the best there. Thank you. Yeah. And let's let's shift to the content. Um, let's start talking a little bit about some of this morning's yeah. program, which, yeah. um, again, MACMA, we really appreciate that great content. And then you've, you've said some other interesting things over, time, over your tenure, and I'd love to talk about that as well. Of course, yeah. I'm going to dig up all of my, uh, my quotes from my past now. That's good. Uh, go on. <laughs> so uh, it was interesting. Brian Mann got up there and basically said, I, I really I think this community stuff is overhyped. Mm. And he, he went on to talk about his definition and what he's doing. Um, we also heard it described um, as a warm blanket. Yeah. And so let's start out by asking you, like, what is your definition of community in context of moving it from just pure audience? I think Brian's right. I think when you're in a, the, the larger the audience that you have, the harder it is to make a community because the more people there are going to be in that group who want to be disruptive. And there are a significant proportion of people in any given group who do want to be disruptive and they tend to drown out those people who are trying to have legitimate uh, dialogue. So I sense his frustration. I share his frustration. Um, it's nice in the context of FIP and the world that we work in, this is a community. You know, MACMA is a community. Uh, I've had the, the joy of interacting with a number of other communities in my time at FIP. I spoke earlier this year uh, at the IRMA conference for regional media. I've spoken at the Alberta magazine. And each of those is its own community. So when you're able to get together as a group of professionals, professionals like this and have a, a dialogue together and to share experiences and to build that sense of, of togetherness over time, then you have a community. Quite how you achieve it in a large consumer brand, I think it's. I think he's right. I think it's a lot harder. I think, uh, you know, we used to be able to do that in part in the print world by talking to readers, by doing focus groups, and by having a sense of what the reader was thinking, by having editors who were really tuned into their subject. And I suspect that a lot of that hasn't really changed and, and, and that we're blinding ourselves a little bit by thinking that by opening the comments book and by opening the, the, the forums that we're allowing reason debate. And as we know on the internet, reason debate is somewhat hard to come by sometimes. So um, why do you think it's so difficult for media companies to kind of get this right? Um, particularly in a lot of cases where they've built significant trust between themselves and their readers. Yeah, I mean, if you want to take media in its broadest sense, I think it's not, it's not right to say that none of them have got it right. I think I find it 
encouraging and astonishing that the one area of the business that we thought would suffer and go under, quite frankly, the quickest from the internet, which is news and news media, is the one that actually in in the round is kind of thriving. You know, okay, local news is tough, but national and international news, they have a pretty clear path towards paid content. We see, we publish every quarter, the global digital subscription snapshot, which gathers data on digital subscriptions across the world. And you can see that digital subscriptions and paid content has volume in every market around the world, and it works in every market around the world. You know, we have examples from Chile and Argentina and China and Hong Kong and, and India and, and you know, you name it, South Africa, Germany. This is a strategy that works for those guys. So they've kind of got it right. I think the two areas of, and B2B has, has kind of sailed through all of this stuff doing its own thing under the radar and been very successful, had its challenges, but been, by and large, a hell of a lot more successful than most of the other sectors in, in the market. The two that I think are most concerning are linear television. I can see the NBC, NBC over there. You know, linear TV and, and magazines, I think, are, are two sectors with immense challenges. And um, Brian and the other speakers today articulated very well how they're responding to those challenges, which is that you know, using this combination of the great content and connection that we have with audiences to gather a load of data uh, on those audiences, which, by the way, we always used to do. We just used to call them subs lists. Now it's called first-party data. Um, and to use that to monetize them directly. And, and what we've talked about over the last few years is the need for media companies, particularly in this great city, to kind of kick those ad guys into the closet a little bit and say, thanks, you know, you had the last 150 years, but the next 150 is not you guys, that's somebody else, um, and really focus on those other areas. And, and Brian's slide was the perfect illustration of that. A third, a third, a third. That's great. If you can have a fifth, a fifth, a fifth, a fifth, a fifth, five, five fifths, that's even better. But I'll start with a third, a third, a third. So that's the absolute right direction of travel. My worry is timing. You know, we're 20 years too late. We should have been doing this 20 years ago. So uh, to be brutal, many of us are not going to survive the transition. Uh, if you start now, you've got a chance, but only a chance. Uh, so I, I find that very difficult. Um, even harder is linear TV, where, you know, you see uh, big companies that are struggling to, to cope with the transition of viewers from sitting down watching whatever was broadcast to them at eight o'clock on a Saturday evening to being able to pick what they want from thousands and thousands of options. And again, it's the same dynamic. You've got the ad guys going, but ads, we've got to sell ads. It's like the viewer doesn't want ads. The viewer never wanted ads. You gave it to them because it was a way to give them the content for free. When they're paying a subscription, they don't want to see that anymore. And I think that's a really difficult cultural, and it's not just in the in the US, in the UK as well, really difficult cultural thing to get your head around as a media business when the thing that you relied on for 150 years just doesn't matter so much anymore. Um, I'd find it hard. Yeah, and this, this kind of ties into a, a big theme of the meeting as well this morning, which is intention. Um, hmm. I think Joyda said, intention is our superpower. Yeah. So... I imagine in thinking about, you know, the advertiser community as it was discussed, it was how can you surface that, um, that moment of truth, like to find that signal noise to connect the advertiser to the reader. Yeah. Um, so is intention a cliche or is it a real thing? No, I don't think it is. And I think Meredith are the, are the, are the masters at that as well. And they have really thought very deeply about what their advertising business should be for the future. And I think intention makes a ton of sense. And the example that Joetta gave on stage was exactly the right one. She's a gamer. 
she doesn't need to see adverts for Doritos, but you know, she might be interested in, in, a, in an advert for a better gaming rig or whatever. I think that's a, that's, that, that makes a ton of sense. That's continuing the great work that Meredith and Hurst and Conde and TMB and all the other great businesses that we have in the city have done to professionalize the ad business over the last 50, 60 years. That's a natural direction of travel. And when I talk about ads in the slightly disparaging way that I do, I'm not suggesting that you stop taking them, just that you relegate them in, in importance so that they're only as important as the other things that you do. That in turn means you can't take your foot off the gas. You've still got to be driving that business forward and professionalizing it. And what Meredith have done around intent is, is really think deeply about what it means to be an advertiser and what it means to be a, a consumer receiving that ad. You know, you want somebody asked in the crowd, they asked a question, can you can you show that somebody takes an action as a result? At the end of the day, that's what we're trying to do, right? Somebody has got to take an action as a result of the message you push to them. So if you anything you can do to improve the understanding of that pathway has got to be better for sure. Um what strategies do you believe are most effective for media companies to balance that personalization and intention with privacy concerns? Yeah, it's a tough one. I mean, I maintain, I've always maintained that if the average user on the street, the average consumer on the street really understood how much data is collected about them and how it's used, they would be outraged. And there, would, and there is a looming scandal coming down the track. Can't predict when it will happen, when this will come into public consciousness. And as ever, legislators will react in an Egypt way as they do in those situations. So we should be very wary about taking privacy lightly because, because we kind of get away with it at the moment. Uh, and I think Apple are, are recognizing that some of the work that they're doing is, is starting to mitigate that. So I think I like the idea that data and privacy has to be a transaction. So if somebody's going to give you some information about themselves, whether that's their intent, whether that's their preference, whether that's their personal data, then that has to be transactional. And they have to make that transactional transaction a lot more explicit than it is now so that they clearly understand what they're getting in return for the information they're giving. So if you want to personalize your experience with a, with a website or with a, an app or whatever, you kind of understand that you're giving them something about yourself, but in return, you're getting a better product that's more suited to you. I think the worry is that there's a whole ton of data collection that isn't transactional, um, and uh, or or at least is not explicitly transactional. And if I was thinking about my privacy and my data strategy, I would be thinking about how I can be transparent with all of that transaction stuff, so that so that I'm making it clear to the user what's happening. I get why that's hard because you then go, well, maybe they won't give it to us. But it's a bit like those subscriptions that auto renew that, you know, there's a push to make sure that people check that whether they want them and you can turn them off easily. I think it's the same thing. You should be checking with people whether or not they're comfortable with the data you're collecting from them and give them the right to be forgotten. I mean, it is it is absolutely a right. Um, there was a great uh, science fiction book I read a number of years ago. So the writer was suggesting that at some point people will have their own privacy cloud that is around them and that even granting somebody access to see your face will be a conscious choice. Uh, and that's that's the danger of the direction we're heading in is that we is that we start to uh, I don't know over over complicate the business of privacy when it should be very simple. This is why we're gathering. This is why we're gathering it. Are you comfortable? If you're not, here's the consequence. You know, I want to tie that to something you said back in January um, about um, companies collaborating even with their their competition. And in the world of privacy. You know, there's a lot more than GDPR and what's happened in Canada, what's going to happen in California and all over the world. And we tend to be very reactive to that. Yeah. So I think you, one of the things that you had um, discussed was the idea that competitors sit in a room, get together and say, OK, what, what should the privacy policies be that we can cut across 
uh, yeah. the industry that will be clear and work for everybody so nobody has a disadvantage or advantage. hundred percent. I mean, look, the days when we're competing with one another are gone. You're not competing with each other anymore. You're competing with Google and Facebook and with companies that don't really care about you, right? And would squash you like ants if they could be bothered, but they can't be bothered. So the only way you can compete with that is to collaborate and to use the scale that you do have. In the UK, there's a fantastic project called the Ozone Project, where a bunch of brands who are traditionally enemies are working together to pool their user data to sell better programmatic advertising because even and this is you know this is not small brands this is the guardian the times the sun you know companies that are big in themselves but recognizing that they're not big enough and the only way they're going to be big enough is by pooling that together it's like you know it would be, it would be like fox news and, and the new york times pooling their data together unthinkable in one sense but actually necessary if you're going to survive and i think the watchword and the motto for our industry in the future has to be collaboration you know, there is a whole ton of stuff that we all do in basically the same way that we could do much better if we just did it together. Um, and that's, uh, you know, and that's something where people are taking advantage of the fact that we don't do that together. Great example recently is sustainability, sustainable practices and sustainable working. There are a ton of consultants out there in the market, including, you know, fucking, are we allowed to swear? I'm going to swear anyway. Fucking snake oil salesman, McKinsey and KPMG who come to you like, well, I can do your sustainability strategy for you. What are you doing? Copying and pasting the same thing you did for the last guy? I mean, this is nonsense. There is only one way to sustainably run a magazine business, right? So we should be able to work that out together. We don't need those guys who don't know who do anything about our business to do that. And there are tons of examples like that where working together, we can actually achieve a better and a cheaper result than trying to invent the wheel each time we do all this kind of stuff. So I think the good news is that that's happening. People are starting to collaborate. I just learned that in Germany, the German print distribution system has long been this byword for inefficiency and ridiculous way of working, you know, effectively regional monopolies. That's just about to be broken up because the publishers have got together and gone, this doesn't make any sense. Let's just get rid of it. Um, and 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 working together by working together, they're getting better results. I think that's the that's the one thing to take away and think about. And trade organizations like this can facilitate. Absolutely, trade, trade associations are a really crucial part of that of that mix. Uh, I know it's very easy. We see this all the time. It's very easy to see them as a uh, unnecessary expense on your P and I, I always say the same thing. If you did not have a trade association, you would you would want to invent one. And when it's gone, you can't get it back. So be really, really careful about, and that doesn't apply to the people in this room, because by being here, you are supporting your trade association. But I think they play an absolutely critical role in all that kind of thing. And, and it's a shame that we've allowed the trade association space to decline in the way that it has. I mean, this is the largest magazine market in the world, and you do not have a magazine trade association. That is astonishing. Um, and it's not the people in this room who are to blame, but they're in this city and, you know, they're down the street and that's just a, a disgrace, quite frankly. So uh, you have to be really careful about what you wish for. You might save a million bucks, but how much did it cost you in the time that you could have had doing stuff like this? Well, talking about change, um, I found that you had an interesting comment again saying something back in, in January. I think it was from MACMA's State of the State address. You, were, you said that uh, we were at the end of the beginning of the future in the media industry. 
What do you mean by that? Well, I can't take credit for that quote. I mean, that's my friend Peter Houston, who runs Media Voices, who, who some of you may have heard their podcast as well. He came up with that at a, at a talk um, that he did for us a few years ago. And I, and I loved it so much that, I, that in great journalistic style, I've shamelessly stolen it and pretended it's mine. Um, the, uh, I, think, I think what we, what he and I both mean by that when we talk about it much is that the internet is not new, right? I mean, I used the internet for the first time when I was in college. And I'm not a young guy, despite appearances to the contrary. Uh, I'm not a young guy. So that was a long time ago, you know, and the internet's been around for 25, 30 years, 30 years. Um, you, you know, this is, this, is, this is quite a long time for something like that. And we still haven't got to grips with it. And arguably society still hasn't got to grips with it. Um, we need to start putting that sense of it being something new to one side. We used to have an event called the Digital Innovators Summit, and we got rid of it, and it was declining in, 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 in people, delegates coming to it. Uh, and we realized that one of the problems is that digital and innovation are, are actually quite antiquated terms in the sense that being digital is not innovative anymore. It's just a hygiene factor. Everybody's got a digital presence. Everybody has to know how to do digital. The innovation only comes in what you're doing with your content, the way you distribute it, the way you work as a company, whatever. That's where the innovation lies. So I think it's about shifting our mindset away from saying, this is this, and most of us have done this, right? I mean, shifting our mindset away from thinking this is this new scary thing into actually this is just one of many ways that we can make and distribute content. How are we going to do that better? Interesting, you talk about a, a, a mindset change. This morning, there was a, a discussion about a paradigm shift that I found fascinating, which was to level the editorial organization. And they're no longer like editor-in-chiefs running around. It's, it's all about how each of the editors is figuring out how to connect to that particular audience. I would have thought that the editorial teams would be the last ones that would kind of take on this digital mantle. Um, and like figuring out how they can lead to, uh, you know, um, those those moments um, of measurement where you have success, like signing mm. for subscriptions mm. and attending events. Um, but that's been really uh, yeah, no, I mean, market change. In my experience, quite the opposite. Editorial teams are really good at that. They love connecting with audiences. That's what they do, right? You're giving them a new way to connect with an audience. I lost count in the, in the early days of podcasting. The number of times you would discover that the driver of the podcasting business was the editorial team because they'd worked out that here's this way that they can actually broadcast to their audience in audio that they can never do before. So that doesn't surprise me that the embrace... Uh, is coming from them. I think in terms of the flattening of the structure, that is happening across the industry. I think it's a good thing, actually. Um, I think uh, my friend Lucy Kern, who did this fantastic report about leadership that we mentioned in the in the presentation, talks about the need to move to pushing power down into the organisation, to high thinking and, and low ego. And that's you know, that's the manifestation of that, right? Job titles are for the outside world. They're not for the inside of a company. Inside the company, as you know, you need to be working collaboratively. You need to not really have bosses. You just need to have teams. And you need to be giving them the power to do stuff like that. So if you've got a good, empowered editorial team, they will come and do that kind of innovation for you. This is the same argument about e-commerce. When you're making recommendations for e-commerce and people say, well, don't I need to have safeguards in place to make sure that we're not recommending something just because the sales guy gets a bigger commission from it? I'm like, have you tried doing that with an editor? Because most of the editors I know would throw you out of the office in two seconds flat if you said you need to recommend this product, which is not the best one. They're the best guardians for the brand for a lot of that stuff. Uh, and you just need to give them the room to do that.
So then maybe the shift really needs to take place in the corner office, because I think Brian was saying this morning that at first to get to a third, a third and a third took four years. Not a lot of you know, senior executive has the have the patience to wait that long. No, but to their to their credit, they have done it, and and to the other the credit of the other businesses in this market, they are doing it. Um, it would be easy to just push. There are plenty of businesses that we've seen. Uh, I think about uh, a company like Reach in the UK. Reach is a big national and regional newspaper. They are pushing for you know the quarterly return to the stock market. And what does that mean? Cut costs. They cut. 10,000 jobs this month, whatever it was, I can't remember, a large number of jobs. They are just racing to the bottom to keep the share price high. Everybody, you know, analysts who work in Wall Street and in the city in London, they don't really understand media. They never understand media stocks. So for them, it's like, oh, that's okay, that's great. When they actually look at it, they go, well, this is just a death spiral. Because what happens when there's no more cost left to cut? Um, I think it's to the credit of businesses like Hearst and Conde and Meredith that they are making those kind of investments. There's also a change in leadership going on in all of those companies at the moment. There's been an unprecedented level of C-suite change in the media, in the magazine media industry over the last five years. I think the, the C-suite teams of all the major businesses that we work with across the world, not just in the US, have all changed in the last five years, whereas they wouldn't have changed for the previous 25 years. So there's a massive amount of change going on at the moment. I think the change that we need to keep encouraging is the one that I spoke about earlier. So uh, if you think about high thinking, low ego, that is a, as big a cultural change for our industry as ads are only a third of the business, right? Because for 150 years, we were run by people who are mostly gone, who were low thinking, high ego. They would stand on stage and go, I'm the boss. This is the strategy. This is the right way to do it. You don't like it. Get the fuck out. And, you know, everything's great. And everybody would clap. And everybody would buy ads, right? You can't do that now because Google goes, that's nice. See you later. Because we've just taken all of that business while you were standing on stage, you know, pretending to be the Superman. So I think that encouraging that level of change, which is happening, is it needs to continue because that's the only way it's going to work. You know, we are not, another of my favorite aphorisms that gets me into trouble is we are a industry that needs to get used to being a medium-sized industry. We were a big industry. We're not a big industry anymore. We're a medium-sized industry. Acts like a medium-sized industry. Um, lovely as this building is, if you were building a magazine business today, you would not build a 45-story tower in the middle of Midtown, New York, to host it in. Uh, and I know the host does other stuff Mustn't be rude about our host and all that kind of thing, but it's the no. We must. I mean, you know, thank thank you for hosting us today. But the point is that the traditional cost structure that those publishing businesses had for the last 150 years is not appropriate for the next 150 years. You need to be in. A, if you've got a if you've got a PA, you're in the wrong business. You need to be in a WeWork in Brooklyn, where you get your own lunch and your own dry cleaning, and you have 10 people in the office, not 10,000. That's that's the future of the business. And I, and I think it would be healthier for it. It would seem a, a major tenet of that is going to be um, if you fail, fail fast. But yeah. encourage people to do so. Um, so do you see the rise of skunk work groups within a lot of these companies that are doing that? Or is it being well, I want, integrated in the mainstream? I want to pick you up on something. that I don't think that if you're going to fail, fail fast is necessarily always true. I think it's one of the great. Did you all read Traffic, that book, Traffic? So who's the big villain in Traffic? It's not, um, it's not the BuzzFeed guys, and it's not the Vice guys. It's Mark Anderson who's the big villain in traffic. Because him and people like him have encouraged the idea that you should just be disruptive and innovative with no business model behind it, and I'll shovel cash at you until something works. 
to the detriment of businesses like Hearst, who are, you know, well-established, well-run professional businesses whose name for investors became mud because of fuckwits like him investing in shitty businesses like BuzzFeed to the detriment of everybody else. So I think there is something to be said for playing the long game and making a sensible investment in stuff. But within that, having it's the same thing as I said earlier, part of, of pushing power down into organizations, part of having high thinking, low ego is encouraging innovation. Uh, and you encourage, or you almost encourage innovation without making it a structure. So people should just naturally feel that they have permission to innovate. And from that innovation comes great things and new businesses and new ideas. That's the way it should really work. Yeah, innovation committee is sort of a silly thing. Yeah, it's a totally, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a, a tautology, right? You can't have an innovation committee. So it's, it's, it's nonsense. You've also talked about sort of the analogies with the music industry's revival. Um, mm. Part of it was um, something that I'm into, which is vinyl records. Um, and you've suggested that publishing hasn't had their streaming moment yet. So what could publishing streaming moment be? Well, if I knew that, I'd be a very rich man. I don't know. I, I don't know, I think is the answer. I think I, I was just trying to point out that in the music industry, it's gone from being very comfortable with the idea of consumers owning music to eventually getting comfortable with the idea that consumers can just rent music. And actually, Spotify and the Apple store to a certain extent is the same. All those stores, the online stores are basically rental stores. You're renting it. Uh, in many cases until death, but you're just renting it, right? You're, you're, when you die, your heirs don't get your, your, your Apple TV account. You know, it just disappears. So the, I think that's the, it's not necessarily the same business model mindset change that we have to go through. It's just the philosophical change. And it might be something as simple as going where the consumer is. So we had a fantastic presentation at Congress this year from our friend. We saw him yesterday, Jens Musselman, who runs uh, Bonnie Core, who I know Jacob knows very well, and has been has been, talk, has been profiling a few times on on AMO, um, and their great presentation at Congress was about Marlin and Marlin, the Marlin fishing brand. That they sold everything else, but they kept the Marlin fishing brand. You would think that's a bit of a misnomer. Why the hell would you keep a small small brand about fishing for one type of fish? The answer being because they found a way to own the audience for marlin fishing from end to end, meaning not just the guys who read the website, but the guys who buy the boats and the guys who enter fishing tournaments and the high net worth. What did he say to me yesterday? The average worth of these people is $10 million. They're all men. The average worth of these guys, of course, they're all men. The $10 million, uh, you know, that's a good audience for them to have. But the only way they were able to achieve that was to go, we're not a media company. We're a marlin fishing company. So we have the best website and the best magazine but we also own the tournaments and we own the fishing expeditions and we own the relationships with the guys who sell kit and so on and so forth. That might be the shift. I've seen a couple of those businesses. There was an, another famous one in the UK called Shift Active Media, which did the same thing with cycling. Um, spun out of future. One guy, Simon Weir, who started off doing, I obviously did something wrong with my life because he and I were peers at one stage and now he's a multimillionaire, story of my life. Um, and he sold that to Discovery. And the reason that Discovery bought it was because they owned cycling in Europe from end to end. They owned all the relationship with the manufacturers, with the consumers, and they were completely agnostic. So here they had a consumer media business. Here they had a B2B business. Here they had a content studio. Here they were providing commentary for the Tour de France, for Discovery. They didn't care. If it was cycling, they did it. I think that's probably the mindset, maybe the mindset shift that we need to get on. It's like there's nothing outside our, our ballpark 
Um, what's the phrase that you use? There's nothing outside of our remit uh, that doesn't count. If it's something our consumer wants to do in that niche, we got to do it. Uh, I think that might be the thing that saves us. And it, it seems um, like a very interesting trend of a, a lot of companies who are going, publishing companies going into the commerce world. Yeah. What are some of the cautionary tales of them jumping into a, a different business like that? Well, I think it's the, one of them is, is the one I said earlier, making sure that your editorial teams are involved, making sure that you understand that trust is the biggest asset you can have in those, in those situations. Future uh, PLC, who are British American, British, mainly British, but partly American, a publishing company, a third of their revenue comes from commerce in aggregate for the whole company. Uh, and when you look in their annual report, there are two or three pages devoted to trust and editorial trust as being central to that commerce relationship. So that's the first one. Don't be tempted to, to spend trust. Trust is a bank. You have to spend it and it's difficult to earn it back again. Um, I think the second one is, is the, my favorite one is the, is the, is the Amazon comparison. So why Amazon's, if you speak to Amazon's CTO and you speak to Amazon tech people, they will tell you that the platform that Amazon's on is actually quite shit. And if they had their way, they'd rebuild it because the technology is not very good. But so you, so you say, well, why does Amazon work? And, there's, and they will tell you that there's one reason Amazon works. And the reason it works is, does anybody know? One click is the reason Amazon works. Because when you go onto a product page, you press one button, and a day later, or sometimes a few hours later, the thing turns up at your door. So removing friction, I think, is another critical success factor for a publisher in this business because we, that part of it is because we don't have the same level of customer relationship that Amazon has, but also partly we're just not thinking about it that way. Amazon's entire business model is about removing friction in that transactional process. And what do we do when we try and sell them something? Fill in a form. I've forgotten who you were. I've forgotten what your password is. You've forgotten what it is. So you have to make another account. Oh, I can't because I use the same email address. Yeah, just all that shit that goes with it. It never happens with Amazon because it just works, right? So don't spend trust, you know, spend trust wisely. Make the transaction frictionless. Think about the balance between affiliate and owned. Even Amazon do that. You know, they don't own all of that stuff. A lot of it's just affiliate with a, you know, Amazon, what do they call it, marketplace. So think about the balance between those things and you'll probably be on the right track. Um, it's, 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 I think it's, a, there is a lot of companies out there that will help you do this from a technology point of view. It's a hell of a lot easier than it first appears. And when you get it going, money starts to come in. You know? it's, it's very good. Future has built entire businesses based around Tech Radar. I mean, Tech Radar is a future brand, operates in every country under the sun. And basically, it's a review site that sells mobile phones and TVs to people. Uh, and, it, and it's a very lucrative business because they've done all those things. Well, we've been talking a lot, but what questions do you all have for James? We have one over here. Yeah, James, first of all, thank you very much for the event this morning. Absolutely outstanding. And what you shared today, and it's a shame that you can't really express yourself. Yeah, I know. But now you know why I'm leaving. Exactly. Talk to me about artificial intelligence, right? You know, there's a lot of opportunity with artificial intelligence for publishers and the media business. There's also a lot of risks. Yeah. You know, we talk about going after audiences and everything else. And by the way, through artificial intelligence, Google and Bing are keeping people on their site by providing answers. Yeah. Never having to go to the source site. Yeah. So what do you see as the, the future, especially with artificial intelligence? Well, I don't want to sound like an, like an archaic dinosaur rejecting all of these new technologies. So I'll talk about the positive side first. I think for people who work in marketing and advertising teams in publishing businesses, this can be a really good thing. Because what 
AI is good at and will be increasingly good at is helping us to interpret and make better decisions around large bodies of data. AI is basically a large spreadsheet. It's a large, very clever Excel spreadsheet, right? So if you've got a large, very clever Excel spreadsheet and you've got it full of customer data, it can tell you a lot more about intent that we spoke about earlier, and it can tell you a lot more about paid content uh, and, and you know what, what somebody presented today on the triggers for paid content, all that kind of stuff. That's going to be great, and that will only get better. And it will materially improve the success that we have in selling digital subscriptions and in selling advertising as well. My worry is that by the time we get around to doing that, we'll all be out of business because the, the, the danger of AI, there's a copyright issue, which is a financial issue which needs to get resolved. And uh, again, I don't keep singling, singling, singling out Jacob, but Jacob said, you know, we shouldn't expect to get paid for it. I, th- I think we should. But anyway, we can debate it over a beer afterwards. I think there's a, cop- there's a financial problem around copyright, but that's not an existential problem. The existential problem is how the big search engines are going to use AI to provide the answers that people want. Um, somebody said earlier today that, you know, Google doesn't exist to help us. And that's right. And neither does Facebook. And neither should they. You know, if we're a capitalist society, which we are, then they have to make their own objectives and, 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 and run their businesses based on what delivers the best value for their shareholders. Um, now, being a good English socialist, I would say up to a point. And the point is that for somebody like Google... They are, if, I've always said this, and it always draws gasps, when I'm, particularly when I'm in America. If Google's a European company, it would be a public utility. In other words, it would be owned by the state because it is so fundamental to the way that societies operate these days um, that to, to suggest that it should be left to private enterprises, to me, nonsensical. The danger is that Google, in following its mission of providing the answer to everything, is going to live up to that mission by providing the answer within its own environment. And there is a danger within that, that in doing the best thing for their audience, they kill the thing that provides the answers. Because all those answers, Google doesn't write content, has never had, never written a a word. They are not a publisher. We accept that. What they do is aggregate content and information very well from us, from the industry, right? But if they provide the answer on the page, then there's no search traffic. If there's no search traffic, there's no ads. And if there's no ads, then we're all out of business. And there's no answers to those questions. I think there are people at Google, from what I've spoken to, who understand the problem inherent in this. They understand the existential nature of the threat, but there's probably only about half of them. And the other half of them go, who fucking cares? Let's just get on with it. So I think there's a, so I think there's a really big issue there about how we respond to that, not as a media industry, but as a society. Do we really want the gatekeeper for 90% of our answers to be a private company owned by a couple of people? That, for me, is a really, really worrying thing. So, uh, And that's before we even get into where the answer comes from. And, you know, inherently bad actors, whether they're corporations, other, other governments around the world, or just malicious individuals flooding these systems with disinformation uh, and, and malicious content that could, be, that could be dangerous. So I know that it's not a great thing in, in, in this market, particularly to talk about regulation, there has got to be regulation, and it's got to be right now. You can't wait five years and see what happens, because if you wait five years, we're all going to be out of business, and you're going to have God knows what kind of politicians in power and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and I'm going to challenge you a little bit on that, because I don't believe that regulation and laws can move at the speed 
of, of AI today. The last thing anybody would accuse you of is being a good British socialist. Exactly. <laughs> and, and by the way, Jacob used to work for me. And if he told me I couldn't get paid on my copyright, I would have fired him. But... <laughs> <laughs> we'll give you the right, give him the microphone in a minute yeah. and he can so, correct me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it doesn't, uh, now I'm going to put challenge you now that you're leaving FIP. Doesn't organizations like FIP play a role? I know you came out, you, you, you worked with a bunch, bunch of other societies in developing a, a, a position statement in a white paper, but doesn't a MACMA, a FIP play a role in, in driving what needs to be a licensing agreement between publishers and AI. I'm turning. I'm not turning my back on you, just so the microphone can pick me up. Um, yes, we should. I absolutely agree with you that we should. Um, the problem with that is funding. So I'll, you know, lay our bones bare. Right? We turn over less than a million dollars a year of it. With a million dollars a year, it's very hard to make that kind of policy change. And the same would be true for Wanifra, the biggest newspaper organization whose turnover is about four or five million euros. Um, Inmar, same thing. DCN here in the US, turnover four or five million dollars. You know, if if that's what the industry, and I'm not using you as a proxy for the industry, if that's what the industry wants us to do, then you've got to pay us because this stuff isn't free. And we're, you know, we're not going to do it for free. There has got to be investment in that kind of industry level public policy to make this stuff a reality. And it comes back also to what I was saying earlier. We need to collaborate. You know, there is a ton of of will to do the same thing in my new industry, PR and communications, in the newspaper world, the TV guys, the, you know, nobody, this is in nobody's interest. So we should be doing that collaboratively. Um, we need to get funded for that. And when a media company comes to a trade association, naming no names anywhere and naming no trade association, because it happens to all of us, and they go, well, I paid you $20,000 this year, but I, last year, but I'm having a tough year. Can I reduce it to 15? You can. But if all of you do that and you do it every year, you end up with trade associations that turn over less than five million bucks and they can't do what you want them to do. So it's, it's you know, we have to be really careful what we wish for because there's nobody else going to do it. Yeah? But I think it's the, the, the other thing about collaboration is the tendency for some of the big guys, you know, the Disney's of this world to think, well, we're powerful enough on our own to lobby about this stuff. It's like you're not, guys. You're just not, you know. Facebook has more lobbyists in, in, in Washington than any other company. They can out-lobby you every day of the week. So it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a, a really tough problem at the moment. I don't have an answer to it. If I did, I, I probably wouldn't be jumping to So I think you should try to get paid. I don't think the money is going to be significant enough to actually be worth the effort. Like we're, You're talking about taking all content on the internet and pushing it into these LLMs, and then how are you going to prove that your content was the content that was used for that particular answer? Are you paid by answer? Are you paid by how many pieces of content go in? I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't work out to that enough money. Mm. Across the entire content ecosystem of the internet, you're talking about billions of dollars a year, yeah. which we're talking about 10 people and we work in Brooklyn. How much are they going to get a year? 200 bucks? 300 bucks? Is that worth their energy? I, I, that's my argument. Like you should be paid. Paul is right. Licensors should be licensees should be paid. So my argument would be, uh, my argument would be that that's where public policy is failing because, and the same thing is happening with the copyright directive and, and Google's, you know, response to that. The market failure there is that Google have leveraged their power to pay us less than that stuff is worth. And they say, you're right. The same thing will happen with LLMs. You're hundred percent right that's where there should be intervention to say, no, there is an intrinsic value to this that is far below what the market is capable of negotiating because you've got an elephant negotiating with an ant. 
And so if the elephant doesn't like what the ant says, it can just tread on it, you know? And that's, and that's, and that's the situation we're going to find ourselves with elephants. I think the, um, the idea of collective licensing is a good one. We use it, it works in other areas. Those collective licensing bodies probably need a little bit of you know, nudge in a different direction to make that work for LLMs, but it, 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 I wouldn't dismiss it quite so lightly. I think there's a, there's a strong chance that that could be more lucrative than we think if we get the right support at the right levels of, of government. You said that the AI models rely on content, and to the extent eyeballs move towards the AI search paradigm, the content goes down, and therefore the AI models cannot then give the answers to your questions. Mm. I think in certain domains, from my experience, the tech domain in particular that I know, they already are generating answers without the need for content. So in, they sucked a lot of content from Stack Overflow. Now you go to this chat GPT. It comes up with the answers that are built upon knowledge that's already built. So it may be true for certain domains, but in certain domains, I think the cat is out of the sort of Well, I, would, I, would, I understand what you're saying. I would take a bit of an issue with that in the sense that even if, 80% of that is true. 80% of the answer comes from in that way. There's still a 20% that's being sourced from our content. I understand from most, for most subject areas, it's about 40% that comes from our content. If you take that 40% away, the quality will be worse. The quality of the answer will be worse. Google's whole thing is about, and, and Bing, we shouldn't just single out Google, Microsoft are doing the same thing, is continuous improvement. You want to continuously improve the product. That's two fundamentally opposing so I can circle my hands in two ways at the same time. Two fundamentally opposing dynamics happening in that space, right? You're taking away a source of an answer, and yet you still want to make the answer better. So what's, you know, you've got to use logic with this stuff. So what's the answer going to be? You can make the content yourself. Do Google and Facebook really want to get into being publishers? We'd love them to, because then we can regulate them like publishers. They don't want to for that reason. So I think there's, a, there's an inherent conflict that, they're not, that they haven't yet resolved. Yeah. Okay. So up to now, it's, it's it's up to now. It's relevant, but every day that goes by after that, it's not relevant anymore. And as we all put no crawl tags on our websites, as we're all starting to do, every day from the day that we start that, their information gets a bit more out of date. So, uh, you know, that's that's why if you haven't done that already, put a no crawl. I forget what the tag is. Yeah, forget what it is. But there's a way to do it so that the LNM can't crawl your site. If we all do that, then eventually they'll be out of date, and they'll have to come to us fast for. So I want to follow the trend of pushing back a little bit, um, but I want to go a little retro, not AI. So you said that editorial can be the greatest um, supporter of the brand, protector of the brand. I come originally from the editorial side and bridge this world. And I can tell you the newsrooms that I've worked in, the media spaces I've worked in are completely decimated. Mm. I am also on advisory boards for several universities for journalism schools. And I can tell you, no, they are having a massive problem of bringing in new talent. Mm. So I see a wave of what's going to come in just, you know, five to 10 years where we don't actually have talent. We're not able to pay people and the ambassadors of the brand are gone. And we have just a bunch of bloated, sorry, rooms of marketing people. Mm. And again, I bridge both worlds. So I say that with love, but right. So, so well, how I do can, we fix that? I'll double down on the controversy okay. and say that from a British perspective and British people in the room will know this, from our perspective, American media, biz media businesses are historically bloated to in extremists. I mean, I look sometimes at the masthead on the New Yorker and go, what the hell do all these people do to produce a magazine once a week? I mean, this is crazy. So I do think there's a little bit of uh, 
rationalization that can happen in there without necessarily affecting it. But you're right, in the long term, you're going to end up in the death spiral. So what, what's the, again, let's work it through logical consequence. Smaller team, more pressure on those guys to do the wrong thing rather than the right thing. The recommendation gets worse. The answer gets worse. People buy less stuff, more pressure on the cost. You can see where it goes, right? You're down the plug hole and they just go out of business. So, you know, the flight to quality, that cliche that we've used, is a real thing. People will fly to quality and there will be people who recognize that quality is worth investing in. The guys who've done that transaction around the Bonnier titles flying, what's his name, Fuller, um, he recognizes that, right? He gets that if you invest in the product, invest in the content, people come to it, price it accordingly, people come to it, then you can afford the editorial resources that you need for all that kind of thing. And it's, I go back to what I said earlier. It's an unfortunate truth. Some of these folks are not going to survive. And there'll be some big ones that don't survive because they just didn't respond in the right way quick enough. Um, I wish I could be uh, far-sighted enough to tell you which ones they are, but, but you know, it's, it, is, it is a truth. You know, We've got five or six big magazine companies in the US. Probably there'll only be four in five years' time. Um, it's just the way it is. And maybe that's necessary. No more challenges. <laughs> no challenges. Right? I'm leaving. I don't care. It's fine. As long as, the, as long as none of the people in the PR world hear this, it's fine. Any other questions? Because I have one more for James. So can we talk millennials for a minute? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So a New York Times survey, I heard that on their daily podcast today, said that 40-some percent of millennials get their news through TikTok. Hmm. Um, and on the other hand, and Carla Zanoni in our podcast last week talked about the efforts by the Wall Street Journal and other places she's been at to, to tap that audience. A lot of it is dismissed as, oh, you know, uh, we can't monetize that group. Um, so how do we think about them as a community, the millennials as a community, and bring them into the more traditional media? Or do we, are we going the other way and meeting them? I think, I think maybe using millennials as an example is, quite, is probably the wrong cohort because millennials are getting quite old now. You know, they're 40 plus, uh, you know, they're nearly as old as I am. So it's, it's, it's those, those, I've always maintained that generations eventually come to more traditional media sources as they get older, just because that's an inevitable fact of life. I think there's some truth in what you said. I think if you took Gen Z audiences um, interacting with TikTok or Discord or Twitch or any of those other new platforms, we've just got to be really clear. The Economist is really good at this. You've got to be really clear about what the return path is for you. But the return path is just awareness. So you're on TikTok because you want people to be aware of your brand, and that's the way that they prefer to receive content, then that's fine. Just do it from a pure awareness point of view in the understanding that as they evolve in their media consumption, you know, I, I, I challenge this idea that Gen Z or any of these generations are fixed in the way that they consume stuff from birth. They're not. They evolve like every other generation. You know, when I grew up, I was listening to the radio and playing vinyl records. Now I use Spotify and the internet. It's possible to change your habits as you go through life. So we don't know how those people are going to consume content in the long term. All we can do is go where they are right now, accept that if we can't monetize it, it's a marketing cost. And if we can monetize it, do the best job that we can in monetizing it and just be sensible about the platforms that we're on. You know, if you're... Um, the Wall Street Journal, you probably don't need to be on Snapchat. You know, that's probably not a good use of your marketing dollars. Um, if you're the Wall Street Journal, you probably should be on TikTok just because the volume of audience on there means that you're going to hit enough of them that when they eventually sit down and get boring and bald and fat like we all do and have to pay for this stuff, 
or want to pay for this stuff, they go, oh, yeah, when I was a kid, I used to look at the Wall Street Journal on TikTok. That was good. I'll pay for that. You know, so it's, 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 I think it's a, just about being honest with yourself. What I get annoyed about is when we do the shiny object thing, which we don't just, it's not just us, everybody does it. You know, we run towards these new, these new platforms and thinking that they're going to solve the problem that we have in the business without thinking about what the actual return path is. We all did that. How many, how many of us in this room invested in Amazon Alexa, what do they call them? Voice service things, yeah? We all did it, right? The smart speaker came along. You know, now, who the hell has a smart speaker? I mean, they're, apart from telling you the weather, they're kind of pointless. The, we all did it. We ran to it. It was great, fantastic. Spent loads of money, blah, blah, blah. Realized that it was actually a waste of time. We did it with Facebook video. We did it, you know, whatever, all sorts of stuff. So, so long as we're just always very aware of why we're doing something, there's no wrong answer to that because you don't know what the long-term consequence as people move through their lives and move through generations is necessarily going to be. The great thing is, and millennials are kind of proving this, right? Millennials are just becoming like the rest of us. You know, the rest of us. Like becoming like old people. Um, and, and I love it when people talk about millennials because I'm from Gen X, the one in the middle that everybody forgets about. You know, the coolest the coolest one and the ones that actually, is, you know, looks down on all of you. So it's, 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 far, it's far better. Um, so I think it's just a question of monitoring how these how these consumption habits change through the life of these generations, paying close attention to the research that's out there. There's a lot of really good research. We had a fantastic uh, lady called Chloe Comby who came and spoke at Congress a number of years ago about Gen A, which is the one after Gen Z. There's already a ton of research happening into what those uh, what that cohort is doing, who are, by the way, reading books in paper and starting to reject the digital world because they want a physical connection to things. So... Doing all that kind of stuff, you'll be in good shape. Just running and plowing money into something without having any understanding of why is has never been a good thing, whether you're in digital or not. I'd like to finish up on something the audience architect likes to ask its guests. There's often an interesting intersection between the professional and personal lives of our guests. Um, so without getting any, anything you prefer not to speak about, what might be those to you? In other words, what does James Hughes do when you're not leading organizations like FIP and now BRCA that you love and apply? I, I, I'm, I'm following what uh, Gen A are doing and rejecting digital media. So I've started throwing all my, so I don't listen to Spotify anymore and started buying, I'm doing the classic middle-aged, you know, midlife crisis hipster, pretend hipster, so I'm not a hipster, but I pretend to be one thing, buying vinyl records and buying books and, and kind of immersing myself in, in, physical, in physical things because I just find the digital noise too much. The, the nice thing about my job is also the worst thing about my job. The nice thing is that I get to meet loads of people and I have lots of interactions with everybody across the world and I'm exposed to all these wonderful opportunities and wonderful things, but sometimes I just need to turn it off. And so when I want to turn it off, I can put on a record and stuff like that. So that's, that's, that's what's important to me. And actually, you know, um, I, grew, I didn't grow up in the UK. I grew up in Portugal uh, and I... At every opportunity, go back. Many of you who were there for the Congress will know that's my hometown. Um, I take the opportunity to go home. And when I go to my friend's bar, a friend owns a bar there that many of you have been to. You sit in the bar and they sort of say, why do you, you, know, why do you keep coming back here? Why do you like it? And I said, because nobody gives a shit. And that's, the, that's when you know you're at home. Nobody gives a shit that I'm the CEO of anything. I'm just their friend. So that's how I kind of switch off and fit and, and, and do my own thing. Well, that's awesome. Um, 
if somebody here is not going to get a chance to press the flesh with you and of course for our listeners how, how might they get in touch with you i'm to challenge you more yeah well, i'm still on uh, very easy i'm still on james at fit.com fipp.com i'm still there until at least the end of january i'm on linkedin always happy i have a golden rule on linkedin i'll only connect with you if i've met you in person so i've met you all in person so do that um and uh connect with me that way and i'm always happy to talk to any of you uh, in person or on, on zoom or whatever you want it's, it's a big part of what I do. Yeah, I'm, I'm just grateful for the privilege to come and do this kind of stuff today. Well, um, to use a little British, uh, British slang, there is no spanner in the works today, uh, technologically or otherwise. Thank you so much. No problem. Thank you. Thank you, everybody.